Good morning. I've, um, I've never been a real fan of the Academy Awards, sometimes referred to as the pinnacle of Hollywood self-congratulation. I like the way Billy Crystal put it. He said, nothing can take the sting off the world's economic problems like watching millionaires present each other gold statues. <laughs> Nevertheless, if the Nativity were a movie... At the Academy Awards, Jesus would win the award for the best male character. And you might say that that's rigged or predestined, and you're probably right, but there's no getting around that he takes out the big prize. Mary would take out the prize for the best leading female. I think the angels would win the award for the best score in a movie, and the star would win the award for the best lighting. But Zachariah and Elizabeth probably wouldn't win an award because they were just supporting characters. They just had supporting roles. Elizabeth had a strong supporting character. Zechariah was almost reduced to a non-speaking role, an extra. But he came good in the end. But even so, they're clearly in the shadow of the main, the main characters. But the thing is that supporting roles or bit players have always had a special place in God's kingdom. We only have to look at the genealogy of Jesus to see this. People like Ruth and Rahab and Jesse, they're not big names by any means, but they were central, fundamental to the unveiling of God's kingdom. The role of Zechariah and Elizabeth was small, but it was highly significant. And we do well to spend some time looking at their characteristics and and seeing what we can learn from them. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at five characteristics of Zechariah and Elizabeth and see what we can learn from them. And the first thing we learn is that Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous people. Luke 1 tells us this directly. It says, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Zechariah was a priest in the temple at the time of Herod and his wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron and they fulfilled their duties and their their lineage very faithfully. Clearly, God was pleased with them. They were declared righteous people. And their righteous standing before God is noteworthy because they remained childless until they were well advanced in years. During that time, Childless was believed to be the result of personal unrighteousness. This verse declares that Elizabeth's barrenness was not due to sin, but rather was due to God's plan to accomplish his purposes in his way for his glory. It says in verse 7 that they were both very old. I don't know how very old is. When I think of very old, I think of Ian Sewell and Peter Russell and people like that. But the the point is, you can get me later, that's all right. The, The point is that they were too late to have children. They were too old for that. And it seems that God seems to operate a lot in the too late zone. For Abraham, it was too late to have a child. For um, Hannah and Elkanah, the parents of Samuel, it was too late to have a child. For Gideon, it was too late to save the Israelites. For Lazarus, it was just too late. He died. 
And of course, for Jesus, when he died, it was too late. And hope was gone. Or so it seemed. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But we're also told through the prophet Isaiah, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. We can sometimes find ourselves in the too late zone. It's too late to change society. It's too late for healing. It's too late for outreach to family and friends. But we can be encouraged that God's ways are not our ways. This passage tells us that God is not restricted by time. He's not restricted by anyone's age, young or old. He's not restricted by education, by gender, by personality, by appearance, by physical impediment. Nothing is too late with God. What God wants is people who are righteous in his eyes. People like Zachariah and Elizabeth and people like you and me when we humbly submit our lives to God and and are obedient to him even when hope seems distant or entirely absent. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people. They kept seeking God. They kept being obedient to God even when it was too late. And God rewarded them for their righteousness. What we're going to do this morning after each of the points, we're going to have just a minute of just meditation, just to think about uh, what that means. So here's our first meditation point. And it's this, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God. What things in your life might make it difficult to apply that same statement to you? Would you be willing to submit to God to seek his victory in these areas? Close your eyes. Let's have a minute to pray and meditate over this. The second thing we learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth is that Zechariah was a chosen man. And we're told here that he was chosen to go into the temple to burn incense. Now, each month, the priestly division um, uh, was chosen uh, to serve, to go into the temple to serve uh, once, one week every six months. So it was very rare for a priestly division to be chosen to go one week every six months to burn incense. And from that division, the priests were chosen by lot. So it was a really rare occasion to be able to go and and do that. You have to be chosen to do that. And some priests actually never even got to do it at all. But um, Zechariah did. He was chosen for this job. But, of course, he was chosen for more than this. While he was in the temple performing his duty, verse 11 says that an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now, I've met a number of people who've said, wouldn't it be great to meet an angel? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful? You know, it would dispel a lot of doubts and it would um, make a ripper testimony and it would would make you feel chosen, I think. Uh, Personally, in no disrespect at all, I couldn't, I would never want to meet an angel in this lifetime. And the reason for that is what you see of all the people in the Bible... When they see an angel, they are shaking in their boots. I mean, you look at all of them. 
from Zechariah here, Mary, Ezekiel, Daniel. I mean, it takes them days to recover. I mean, it's a really traumatic experience. I've had enough trauma in my life. I don't need an angelic visitation to tell me anything like that. But what I want to say is that Zechariah sees an angel and he's startled and he's gripped with fear. So the angel says to him, it's standard protocol language for angels when they speak to humans, don't be afraid, okay? Just take a breath and relax. Your prayers have been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? But what I want to say here is that you don't need an angelic visitation to know that you're chosen by God because it's gospel truth that anybody who is in Christ has been chosen by God. We've been called by name. The Apostle Peter says, Steph read it a little bit earlier, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Believing this is much less traumatic than having an angelic visit. But it's no less wonderful. Zechariah was chosen for a special purpose. But so were you. And here's our second meditation point. How should I respond to God for choosing me? Take a moment, close your eyes, pray about this and answer this question. We've learned that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous, uh, that Zechariah was chosen, but we also learned that Zechariah was weak. I mean, take a look at how he responded to the angel's amazing news. The angel says, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. He'll be great. He'll bring back many people. He will go in the spirit and the power of Elijah and so on. And how does Zechariah respond? Quiz time. Let's see how well you've been listening. A. He says, you beaut, thanks for letting me know. B, excellent, be sure to join us for the circumcision. C, the Lord has done this. He has shown his favor and taken away our disgrace among the people. And D, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. I'm going to have hands here. Who says A, B, C, D? abstentions yeah the answer is d uh, although i think a is a pretty good answer it should have been c it should have been c but that's the answer that elizabeth gave i think d is a really poor response given that they'd been praying for a baby for so long and an angel comes and gives them the news you still can't believe it the angel rebuked zachariah for his belief and declared you will be silent 
and unable to speak until the day these things take place. I remember when I was a kid, my mother used to say, Andrew, if you haven't got anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? Seems here the angel is saying to Zachariah, Zachariah, if you haven't got anything faithful to say, I'm not going to let you say anything at all. And the reason for that is because doubt is dangerous. When Zechariah emerged from the holy place, his role was to pronounce the blessing of Aaron upon the people. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't speak. His lack of faith blocked blessing to others. It's a sobering thought to think that our lack of faith can not only hinder our walk with God, but it can block blessing that goes to others. Zechariah had to resort to clumsy signs and gestures, much like my signing, I have to say, for people to understand that he'd seen a vision. And even then, they didn't really know quite what he was talking about. We can sometimes be weak too, can't we? We can sometimes respond to God's word with doubt. I know I can relate to this. How do we respond to Pray for anything in my name and I'll give it to you. Do we respond with a bunch of qualifiers? Do we respond with prayers that are so small that they probably would have happened anyway? Last month, Pat encouraged us to pray big prayers. Prayers that Luke calls prayers of shameless audacity. That should be our posture before God. So when we read the promises of God in our weakness, it's all too easy to say, yeah, but... Yeah, but you don't know my situation. My situation is impossible. My husband will never change. My kids will never learn. We'll never get out of debt. I'll never be well again, and so on. But God's word says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. And we had to believe that and lovingly obey. Zechariah did. He returned home to his wife, and, and she conceived, just as the angel said. Zechariah had a weak moment and he suffered because of that. But God's plans for Zechariah and for his people cannot be thwarted. Here's our third meditation point. What promises in God's word do you find difficult to believe? Memorize them, meditate them and claim them from God. Let's take a moment. Close your eyes. Let's meditate on this. Let's move on. Next thing we learn is that in contrast to Zachariah's weakness, Elizabeth was faithful. She gave thanks to God in all circumstances. She gave birth to a son, just as Gabriel had promised, and her neighbors and friends all came to uh, celebrate and to rejoice with her. On the eighth day at the circumcision ceremony, at the naming ceremony, they're all gathered around. They expect the baby to be named Zachariah. That's in the family tradition. And Elizabeth says, no, she's sticking to her gun. She says, no, his name will be John. But the family and friends all question her on this. Why? There's no reason. There's no John in your family. 
she brings Zechariah in. Zechariah writes on a tablet. Yeah, his name will be John. At that point, it says his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God and then being filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied about the role of John, the role that John would play in preparing the way for the Messiah. It's good to see John, uh, Zachariah, sorry, returning to a, a more righteous posture before God. But there's something really faithful and gracious in the way that Elizabeth responds, in the way that she just demonstrates her faith when she meets Mary later. Mary's pregnant with Jesus. And the two meet. Let's see how Elizabeth responds. We're going to have another quiz here. You ready? Okay. She meets uh, Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, and she says, A, dang, why do you get to have the Messiah and I only get to have a messenger? B, listen, you're stealing my thunder. You stay there in Jerusalem, I'll stay in the hill country, okay? C, okay, you may be having the Messiah, but just remember, my son's born first. He has seniority. D, how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? No hands on this one. The answer is D, obviously. But her words are unusual for for several reasons. For one thing, they reveal that Mary understood what was going on. She, by divine revelation, knew that Mary was giving birth to the Messiah. And she acknowledged this. And I think even more amazing than her understanding was her response to that, the graciousness of it. She knew that she had been honored by God, but she was very comfortable knowing that Mary had been infinitely more honoured than God that she had and than any other woman had. She didn't even feel worthy of Mary's visit. It would have been easy for her as an older, more senior to Mary to say, Lord, why didn't you choose me? What about me? Why didn't I get that? But there's no hint of jealousy or self-seeking in her spirit. And no doubt that's why God chose to bless her so richly. Elizabeth was faithful to God on every level. And here's our fourth meditation point. In what area might I be allowing jealousy or comparison to erode my faith and weaken relationships? In what practical ways can I show graciousness to those who God is blessing? Take another minute. Close your eyes and think about this one. Let's go on to our final point, and that is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were hopeful. They were hoping for a baby, and then they were promised much more than just a baby. God went way beyond their expectations. This child would be, the child the angel announces, great in the sight of the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth, go in the spirit and power of Elijah to make a people ready for the Lord. That is some proclamation that is hope lavishly fulfilled that child grew became strong in the lord eventually being known as john the baptist it's interesting that after that zachariah and elizabeth were never mentioned again in the bible 
They're bit players, supporting roles. And we're told that John lived in the wilderness until his first public appearance to Israel. And he lived a strange life out there in the wilderness. It's thought that Zechariah and Elizabeth passed away before John began his ministry. So they would never have seen what they were hoping for. They would never have seen John preaching. They would never have seen him baptizing people, calling for repentance. But they raised him in the hope that he would be filled with the Spirit and that he would prepare people to meet Christ. Elizabeth and Zechariah were very much like the, the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11 who did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. But we can safely assume that their qualities of righteousness and faithfulness and their hope in the kingdom of God had enormous influence in shaping their son and the ministry that he would have in service to God. But here's what I wonder. I wonder that if they had watched John grow to adulthood, would they have had their hopes fulfilled? And I'm, looking, I'm thinking of this on a superficial level at least because I wonder if their preconceived expectations might have kept them from realizing the hope that they were waiting for. They might have been hoping for a well-groomed, eloquently speaking man with impeccable taste in food. Instead, they got a barefoot, deodorant-free, tie-dye shirt-wearing guy who ate locusts and thundered about hell and fire. And I wondered, would they have been proud of this? Or were they expecting something a little bit different? I wonder if it might have caused them to lose hope a little bit. We saw this in John the Baptist later with Jesus. Jesus wasn't quite behaving in the way that he expected. He began to lose hope. He sent people to ask, are you the one that we were to expect or is there somebody else coming? Sometimes our natural expectations lead us to miss the fulfillment of hope in what God is already doing. Let me share with you an experience I had ministering in Japan. And when I began pastoring there, we were just a little group of 12 people, really motley bunch of 12 people. And I spent so much time preparing sermons and services and Bible studies week after week, month after month, and I just didn't see the progress. From time to time, I would ask God, is this really what you want me to be doing? Is this a good use of my time? And I felt God saying each time, Andrew, just keep doing what you're doing. Just stick with it. Month after month became year after year, and I was still putting so much time into these 12 people who were not changing and who were barely changing themselves, let alone the world. And based on what I could see and what I expected, I began to lose hope. I couldn't quite see the point of it all. Then one day, out of the blue, I got an email from uh, a member of our church who had returned to his home country. And he said, Andrew, I have a confession to make. He said, every week at my church here, I lead the praise and worship, and the minister asks me to share for a few minutes from the word. And he said, every week, I just take your sermon and I rip it off word for word, and I give it to the sermon. And after the service, people come and slap me on the back, and they say, that was fantastic. Thank you for sharing. I'm so encouraged. And he said, I feel so guilty. He said, can I have permission to use your sermon when I'm speaking to the 400 people in our church? 
So I'd been feeling pretty hopeless because all I could see was preaching to 12 people. And I couldn't imagine that there would be a bigger picture and that my efforts were actually reaching 412 people. A couple of weeks later, I got another letter from a church member who had returned to Africa where he pastored a church. And he said, I'm not kidding, he said, Andrew, I have a confession to make. He said, every week at my church I give a sermon and I'm just ripping off your sermons word for word. He said, I do this every week to my 200 members and they're all getting so much out of it and I feel guilty. Can I have your permission to share your sermons in my church? He said, actually, it's worse than this. He said, I'm actually sharing your sermons with all my pastor friends around Africa. We're all using your sermons. (laughs) My expectations led me to lose hope in the reality of what God was doing. And by God's gracious intervention, my hope was restored. And interestingly, soon after those letters, our church grew rather quickly from 12 to 30 and then 30 to 50 and 50 to 80. It's easier to have hope when you can see, but then seeing is no hope at all. Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. The angel said to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he, your child, will be a joy and a delight to you. And no doubt he was. But I wonder if they had to refocus their natural expectations a bit to receive that joy and delight, just as I did with those letters. I worry, especially at Christmas time, that many people miss seeing their greatest hope fulfilled because they're too distracted by superficial expectations making the Christmas tree look just right, getting the food just right, buying the perfect gift, not forgetting a gift. And in so doing, they miss out on discovering the true hope that Jesus brings and the true hope that Jesus is. Because Christian hope, the great hope of Christmas, is not like the hope of the world in its expectations or in its scope or in its foundation. I hope tomorrow will be sunny. I hope the prawns are on special. I hope the sermon will finish soon. It will. (laughs) These are not bad things to hope for, but they're not what Christian hope is about. We celebrate Christmas to rejoice in the truth that God has come to us. The meaning of Christmas is found in the true hope that lies beyond the superficial expectations that we might have. And here's what it is. Here's the real truth. The birth of Christ is... 2,000 years ago means rebirth for us today. That's where the hope is. New life, eternal life. Christian hope is not wishing. It's not a dream thrown out to the cosmos. It's the blessed assurance of what is unseen. We don't wish upon a star. We pray to an almighty God who demonstrates his love to us through and in his Son. Just as Zechariah and Elizabeth found, godly hope inevitably points us to Christ and finds its fulfillment in him. Jesus is the end game of our hope. And Paul captures this perfectly in his letter to Titus. He says, when the love and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Why? So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Amen? I hope you have a good Christmas. I hope that the Christmas message thrills you, and I hope that you have the hope, the blessed assurance of eternal life. I want to say, if you have that hope of eternal life, then rejoice with all your heart. If you don't yet have that hope of eternal life, then there will be a time for prayer after the service today, and I encourage you to come forward and pray and receive that hope. Zechariah and Elizabeth were in some way a supporting act in the Nativity story, but they were very important. And they may or may not have received an Academy Award for their performance, but I can tell you without doubt that they would have received a very warm welcome in heaven and a great reward. Us too, we might only have a supporting role, but God delights in using supporting roles to advance his kingdom. Let me finish with this question. How can you, in your supporting role, in your hope, point people to Jesus this Christmas? Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, how can we thank you enough for the great hope that you've given us in Christ? What an amazing gift you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the examples that we can read in people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen each of us to be faithful servants in whatever supporting role we have to point people to the great hope in Christ. And we thank you again for this in Jesus' name. Amen.